we are in the midst of a series, uh, Everything We Need. Uh, last week, Nick talked about how we are firmly, we need to be firmly established in truth. And we need to be firmly established in these truths. And so there's a, there's a, there is the truth that we live by. And it's, 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 it's firm, it's solid. And in that firm and solid truth, last week Nick preached, that we need to be deeply rooted and established in that, that we need to be constantly reminded of the truth. And so you get these two-hour sermons like I'm going to preach today. No, no, it won't be two hours. It's more like 45 minutes. It won't be two hours. And, uh, you get these sermons, and we have uh, classes, Sunday classes, and many of us read, and even in the songs that we choose, uh, our intent is to firmly establish you in the truth of the gospel, right? And, and because of that, then the message that you hear needs to be accurate. And that's what we're, we're going to um, address today. Um, before we dive in, uh, if you are newer here, uh, we have a, a scripture memory passage for this whole year. It is 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2, <laughs> uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, right? And uh, last night we, were at, we had worship night at the church, and we tried to recite it, and we didn't do too good, did we, Darius? We didn't, we didn't do too good. We learned it. We learned it, right? And so these cards are available out front at the info desk. You can grab them, and, and I haven't got them totally down, so I'm going to be using this card as well, right? So these cards are available. Here's the memory passage. Uh, everything that we preach this year is going to be rooted in this text. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. His divine power, and sorry for the, the blanks that are on the screen here. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of him, that's right, read along with me, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For you, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if we do these things, you will never fail and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter is telling us that in Christ, in his word, um, in his example, in our fellowship in the church, we have everything we need to live a productive and godly life. But it's then really important that what we're hearing and what we are obeying is the right message. So he speaks about how we can size up the prophet. 
Uh, Joan of Arc was born in Don Remy, uh, France in 1412. And she was, by all accounts, an average uh, young woman. She was a poor her, peasant. Her, her parents were peasant farmers. And she learned godliness and domestic skills from her, from her mom. And she learned uh, about, about Jesus and the gospel. And she had a great love for spiritual things. But in terms of practical skills, she took care of animals. She was a good seamstress. At the time of Joan of Arc's birth, however, France was embroiled in a long-running war, a hundred years war with England. And England had taken over large parts of, of northern France and uh, the, the, the establishment, the, the crown in France was nervous that, that all of France would be ruled by England and the war was going terribly. In fact, in 1415, um, uh, King Henry invaded northern France and a chunk of the French people, the, Burgund the Burgundians, actually signed a peace treaty with them that said when the current king of France died, and the current king of France was ill and some said he was insane, they, said, they signed a treaty that when he died, the crown would pass over to the king of England. Around this time, Joan of Arc began to get these visions from God. And the visions encouraged her to, to be chaste and to live a pious life. Over time, they became more vivid. And she believed God was designating her to be the savior of France, encouraging her to seek an audience with Prince Charles and ask his permission to expel the English and then install him as the rightful king. And so you have this 16-year-old teenager with these strange visions. And she goes to, to uh, Prince Charles's local officials and says to them, hey, God has called me to lead France to victory. And they look at her, uh, she's a woman, uh, she's illiterate, and she has no military training. Uh, but, but she has this, there's just a sense of truth about her. So the commander was like, no way. But she tells her vision to the people in the community, and they remember this long prophecy in France of a virgin, God raising up a virgin, who would save the nation and preserve the kingdom. They, they, they have this prophecy in the back of their mind, and things are really desperate. I mean, the, the, the English are just whipping them on every battle. And after a while, the, the, the general just kind of gives in, and he gives her, her a small detachment, a horse, armor, and sends her to uh, the town where Prince Charles is. And, and she shows up, and Prince Charles is even more dubious. He's like, you gotta be kidding me. This is our savior? But he relents, gives her an audience, and in their discussion, she tells him about a dream, or actually an actual prayer, where he had prayed to God asking for deliverance for his, his nation. And he never told anyone this prayer, but Joan knew about it. And he was like, this must be from the Lord. But to test her, he had his theologians come and inquire. And they came to some conclusions about her. They said, after inquiring with her, we find nothing improper with Joan only piety, chastity, and humility. So in their desperation, 
And due to the fact that it was obvious that God's hand was on this woman, the king gives her armor and a horse and sends her out to fight the battle in Orleans. And they get to Orleans. Now, up to now, the French have been getting wiped out in every battle. They get to Orleans, and they go from victory to victory to victory. Now, she has no weaponry. All she has is a banner, right? She goes out to the force in the name of God, declaring victory over the English. And all of a sudden, the people who up till now were thinking it was impossible for them to beat the English, now have the sense that God is on their side and they can win. And after all these battles, she goes back to Prince Charles and she says, we need to take you to the town and we need to coronate you as the king of France. And, and, and indeed, that's what happens. He goes and standing in a prominent position is this 19-year-old, illiterate, untrained, general of the French forces who now is known as the patron saint of France. The question is for us today that Peter puts before us is how do we determine the true prophets from the false prophets? What is the difference between them? And I want to suggest to you that you can size up a prophet by identifying their message, their master, and their motivations. So it is true that God has given us everything we need to have a life of godliness and productivity. And it is true that we need to be firmly established in the truth and that we need to be, uh, 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 when we come together, we are getting ourselves more and more rooted in what is true. But because of that objective, We need to be very certain that what we're being taught is indeed the truth. And this text tells us we can identify the true prophet based on their message, master, and motivations. Is there a message? So there's three questions we're going to walk through today. Is their message completely reliable? 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21 says this, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about this this way. He writes a letter to his young protege and says to him, to to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. It's from the mouth of God. It's from the spirit of God. And it's useful, and therefore, because it's from God and it's perfected, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this is why we believe that God has given us everything we need to live a life of godliness. And theologians have called this process by which we have got our scripture. They've called this the inspiration of the prophets. And this is the systematic kind of definition. The Holy Spirit so guided and superintended the writers of scripture, making use of their own background, their own culture, their own language. None of that was set aside. 
through the Holy Spirit, working through these things, made sure that what they wrote was all that God intended them to write, without excess or without error. And so Peter's argument is this. He says that the church has a message from God that is totally reliable, that it's God's message, and the church should be careful to heed it. So then, how do we size up the message of the prophet? Who are the modern prophets that we need to pay attention to? Because in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, as there were false prophets in the, in the Old Testament times, even so there'll be false teachers among you. So what he's saying to us is, there are false teachers among us, and we need to know how to recognize them. Today I came in uh, to preach, and sometimes when you're up to preach, you can be feeling real confident, like, oh, it's going to be a great day, or you can be feeling not so confident, like, oh, Lord, I really need you. The, the second is the best place to kind of be at. I was feeling in the second place today. And so I came in, and there, uh, there's a, one of the ushers, his name's Charlie, and Charlie, I was like, Lord, I need somebody to, to, to pray for me. And God must answer that prayer, and Charlie came up, and, and I listened to his prayer, and his prayer went something like this. He said, Lord, fill Lord with your spirit so that he can speak your word. He said, fill him with your spirit so that he could speak your word. Amen. He didn't say, fill Lord with wisdom so he can speak his word. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't really interested in hearing my word today, for today, right? He was interested in having the scriptures more fully explained, right? And so the prophet also has the same consideration. Um, one of my favorite prophets in the whole Bible is Ezra. And the reason he's my favorite is because of this verse that is in Ezra 7 and 10. Bear with me as I get to it, because I don't remember it. Ezra 7 and 10, it says this. Um, the, the, the context is, the 70 years where Judah was in exile in Babylon is just about coming to a close. And Ezra's responsibility is to rebuild up the people spiritually. And the scripture says, Ezra, a priest, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teach its decrees and laws in Israel. He did, devoted himself to learn it he devoted himself to do it, and he devoted himself to teach it. The reason this is kind of cool is because, like, this is my mission in life, uh, to learn, to do, and to teach. So, God's word. And so, the, the, the legitimate prophet, the true prophet, has this as their objective. First they learn it and internalize it themselves. Then they apply it to their own life, their own family, their own friendships, their own relationships. And then they teach it, they disciple others. That's the prophet. And that kind of prophet believes that, the, that, that God has provided everything we need for our spiritual sustenance. That's why they focus on the scripture and not philosophy and other disciplines. It's not that they don't respect other disciplines. It's that when they're trying to impart reliable truth for the soul, they're focused on scripture and not other, 
types of knowledge. That they are reminding people of truths. And that's why it harken us back to last week's sermon with Pastor Nick, that a large part of our preaching is, are they going to preach the gospel again? Yes. We're going to preach the gospel again. We need to be reminded of its transcendent truths. And that when we preach, whether the message is foretelling or foretelling, whether we're foretelling something that hasn't occurred or just explaining the scriptures through foretelling, that it's always consistent with the word of God. Beware of a, a, a prophet who's trying to f- tell you something in the future that's inconsistent with what you know is God's reliable truth. Amen? I, I do believe that God can give people certain words for us in the future. I believe that still occurs. But if it's not consistent with what you know to be true, you should avoid it like the plague, right? And the false prophets, they have a mixture, they have a way of adding truth and error. They either add to the truth or they take away from the truth. There's a a famous uh, pastor who preached a message on the power of Christ, knowing God. And they were referring to a very common passage in Philippians where Paul says, I want to know Lord, the Lord and the power of his resurrection, right? And so he went on and on talking about the power of the resurrection and the victorious life and the triumph from triumph. But the next line is, and the fellowship in his suffering. We need to be careful of preaching that just goes from glory to glory, from victory to victory, and doesn't tell us about persecution and God's discipline. Christians will endure persecution for the faith, and God will take us through discipline in order to grow us and mature us, right? So, so any, any message of just victory and no pain is a false message. And these false prophets will add to and will take away God's, from God's message. The message will appeal to, to human natural desires. Beware of the message that tells us that we need to examine our hearts for direction as opposed to examining the scriptures. Beware of the, I think, the modern kind of message today, the modern heresy of the day, is that we can govern our affairs by looking inward, looking at our gifts, looking at our our, our logic and our reason and our science exclusively and not looking into God's revealed truth. These things appear to our own sense of power and strength and knowledge. They, they, They appeal to our ability to work things out naturally and they oftentimes appeal to our flesh. And we need to be beware of that kind of a message, right? And the last one is that the message uh, can actually harm the hearers. And that brings us to the first, the very first false prophet in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, page 4 on the Bible, God tells Adam and Eve, you are free to eat from any tree 
This is chapter 2, verse 7, 16, 17. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And God was attempting to teach them reliance on him, trying to teach them that he was their God and they were servants. And what does the serpent say when he approaches Eve? This is what he says. He says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, chapter 3. Verse 1, any of the wild animals the Lord had made, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. This is why we need to be really deeply uh, ingrained in the truth. God said nothing about touching it. He said nothing about that. There was no instruction on touching, but she added it to it. She added to the, the revealed truth, right? You, uh, verse four, you will not, the serpent says, you will not die, said the serpent to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And so the, the enemy distorts the message and he ends up harming Adam and Eve. There's the, there's the fall, there's this, um, this distance between God and man that we still endure today. We know him by spirit, but not face to face like they have the opportunity. And so the distortion causes actual harm. What we thought was gonna prosper us and bring us good ends up bringing us calamity and damage. So it is with the false prophet. The message they bring actually, we need to look at it, it actually brings us harm. And so that's the first thing, is that, is the message reliable? The second thing is, is their master the Lord Jesus? Is their master the Lord Jesus? Second Peter 2, 1 and 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct, and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. I want to concentrate on they deny the Lord Jesus. In what ways do they deny the Lord Jesus? Every Christian needs to answer these questions, these three questions about our faith properly. Do you worship Jesus Christ as your Savior through his substitutionary sacrifice, sacrificial death on the cross, in your place, the text says they deny the Lord that bought them. They deny the Lord that bought them. So the question is, does the teacher recognize their own sinfulness and claim Christ's justification and his, uh, based on his atoning death and, not, and his righteousness? That is to say, does the prophet recognize that they are a sinner saved by grace? Or do they think they have some special calling or some special anointing? Peter says that these prophets deny the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we need to look for. That's the first thing you need to look for if you say that you're a Christian. Do you recognize that your salvation is bought through the blood of Christ? Second, do you worship Christ as Lord as you follow in the way of truth and seek to fulfill his plans and purposes? 
And the, the secondary question is, does the teacher teach God's plans and purposes for his people and show by example how to pursue them? Oftentimes, churches will have vision statements and they'll have missions. And you should be very careful when the mission of, of the church doesn't line up with the mission that's given to us in Matthew 29. When the mission isn't about going to the world and making disciples of Jesus Christ, when the mission isn't about uh, loving God and loving others, when the mission is askance from that, that's not God's mission. So be careful of prophets that teach plans and purposes that are not God's plans and purposes. That's the second one. And then the third one is this. Do you worship Christ as your, as your God, submitting to the authority of his will in every part of your life through his word and his spirit? Does the prophet rely on the word and the spirit or his personal wisdom and ideas? Is the prophet depending on God or is he depending on something else? One of the toughest um, things that I had to, to really come to uh, uh, terms with when I felt like God was calling me to the preaching ministry, one of the toughest things I had to come to terms with was that my life was not my own. And for me, the biggest thing was that I might not be able to make my own career decisions just based on what I wanted to do. Um, I was afraid of the call to preaching because I was afraid it might end me up where I am right now. Full-time, I'm just being honest, full-time pastor in a church, making a lot less money than I could have made in my other profession. I was afraid of that. And I had to learn by faith that God is sufficient and graceful. Now, if you ask me now, I would never go back to my previous career. I love my career. Um, my wife was just telling me, she ran into some friends of mine. They were like, Lord, we wish Lord was back. And I'm like, well, Lord doesn't wish he was back. <laughs> you know, Lord doesn't. I miss the friends. I miss my friends. But I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I, I enjoy serving God's people. And I enjoy it for half of what I've made before. I enjoy it, right? But I had to know, I had to recognize that it was, that God was Lord and not my previous plans. And a real prophet has got to come to those conclusions too. Remember Jonah? God said, go to Nineveh. And where did he go? Went to the bottom of the belly of a fish, right? He didn't want to because he wanted, he knew God was gracious and such and so forth, and he didn't want to do what God, I, would, I found myself in that place. And I knew I had to come to terms. So prophets have to come to, to terms with the fact that it's God's agenda and not theirs. It's God's career program and not ours. Prophets, prophets get that. The scripture talks about they deny Jesus by what they say. 1 John 2, 23 through, 2, 2, 2 through 23 also confirms this. It says, who is the liar? The person that denies Jesus Christ. How else do they deny Christ? John goes on to say, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. They deny Christ by what they do. 
The one who does what is right is righteous, just, just as God is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And so the, question, the answer is, and what Paul tells us in, what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, 2 is, he says, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In other words, the prophet's conduct will be evil, sinful, clearly. His followers will be deceived and the church's reputation will be damaged. In other words, he says, look at the fruit of their lives and look at the fruit of their followers. So how many of you got a survey from us this week that asked some questions about our discipleship program and plan and so forth? It's from, from Mike Beresford, right? A good chunk of you. We sent out about a thousand. We got about a hundred back. You know, his surveys. That's good. We got about a hundred back. Right? There was one thing. There was many things that that the we, we did the survey so we could find out if people who were coming to our church were actually being rooted getting friends, and actually growing spiritually. That was the purpose of the survey, right? One of the things that we were encouraged in the survey was that the vast majority of people said that they were growing in Christ, right? If the, if the survey had said, we're stagnant in Christ, we're actually going backwards in Christ, then, then me, Pastor Nick, the elders need to take a look at ourselves and say, what's going on? What are, we, what are we teaching here? What example are we giving here? Because an example of authentic Christianity is you. Are you growing? Are your children flourishing in, the, in this ministry? And, if, and is, if not, is it due to our teaching or some other factor? So we gotta look at the fruit. So you can size up a prophet by identifying their message, their master, their motivations, and we've said, is their message reliable? Is it God's message or their message? Is the master Lord Jesus or someone else? And then lastly, are their motivations pure? I have come to find, and this, this um, Peter's writings bear this out, that there are three major motivations of false prophets. We see them in our text. The first one is greed. This is in chapter, in, in, ch in chapter 2, verse 3. It says, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you. That is to say, they are more concerned about their own power and profit than they are about your growth in Christ and glorifying Jesus. So, so look carefully for the motivation. Is it personal? Or is it God's motivations? The first thing, they're greedy. Secondly, they're, they're sensual. Verse 2.14 says, with their eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. You may ask, why does Lloyd always like talk about his wife when he preaches? Because I'm trying to protect myself. I do have a great wife. And I, I do want to leave an example for married folks how to honor their wife but I'm also trying to protect my soul, that's the secret. I'm trying to protect myself from lust. And so by, by always trying to give proper honor to my wife, I'm trying to communicate to someone else and to myself that hey, leave that guy alone, he's happy. I'm trying to deal with the temptation that all men have to deal with. S sensuality. 
eyes full of adultery. Nothing will destroy a life, a Christian life or a pastor's life like uh, adulterous eyes. So I only have eyes for you. All right. And then pride. The third is this. The third is this. She's going to kill me after this one. (laughs) Two in ones and two in ten, they say this. They say, denying the sovereign Lord and they despise authority. False prophets don't like elder boards that are strong. They don't like elders that come and correct them. They want to put themselves at a level above all the other leaders in the church. They don't want Jesus' authority, let alone human authority. I want to tell you about uh, three other things that I have seen in my life that you need to pay attention to as it regards to false prophets. They make themselves bigger and Jesus smaller. Let me give you an example. I was at a church as a young Christian when I left the Catholic uh, faith and uh, got baptized uh, as an affirmation of being saved by Jesus. I was at a church and I heard a person say, they they don't have to love Jesus, but they gotta love me. I never forgot that. Uh, The same pastor went on to say, they, the church had built this great new facility, um, bigger than this one, probably sat a thousand people. I remember him one time saying, it'd be a shame. It'd be like the Chicago uh, Bulls. This was during Jordan's era. It'd be like having the Chicago Stadium and no Michael Jordan. That's what this church would be like without me. Uh, I'm serious. <laughs> and so the false prophets equivocate themselves with God and even will put themselves above God because that's what their interests are. They want to be the leader. They want to be powerful. They want the money and so forth. And, but I, I'm always reminded about what the apostle uh, John said, the, 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 the John, the forerunner of Jesus. As, as Jesus' ministry was in, increasing and his prominence was going as it was, as John knew it would, and his, as his apostles, John's apostles came to him to question, hey, this guy's, he, his folks are baptizing more people than you. And John says this, he says, he said, I must decrease and God must increase. And that ought to be your ambition as a Christian. Your life and your ways and your, your sinfulness and your thinking, that must decrease. And in the midst of that, Jesus Christ in you must increase. It must flourish. It, it, th- that Christ in you is what the objective and the goal is. And so your, your, your pastors, your leaders ought to have a sense of humility that if anything is going well in their, min- in their ministry, it's Jesus. And if anything is not going well in their ministry, it's me. That's the kind of mindset that the right prophet must have. I'm, I'm um, reminded of what the French theologians said about uh, Joan. They said she was godly, they said she was humble, and they said she was chaste. They said she was godly, they said she was humble, and they said she was chaste. What I'm saying to you is that false prophets are greedy, 
are sensual and full of pride. Second, second thing I want to say to you, that these false prophets will have entourages versus disciples. And I, I can't tell you how many entourages. They will go and they will go, be guests at, at preaching and they will have these, these people are, that are around them. You think you're at a rock concert where they were having security or something like that. They have these entourages of people and they're there to serve the prophet. They're there to demonstrate the power of the prophet. I mean, I hate that stuff when I see it. Now, teachers and pastors ought to have disciples. They ought to be discipling men and women. So there ought to be folks, but they ought to be there to, 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 to serve the disciples, to show, to train, to motivate, and to help them grow. And so, truth be told, I could use a few more disciples. Amen? See me about small groups. I could use, I could use a few more disciples. But so that they would be built up, not me built up. So we need to be careful of the entourage type prophet versus the disciple making type prophet. We need disciple making prophets, not entourages. There's no rock stars in the, in the, in the house of God. Amen? Lastly, there's an inordinate focus on tithing and giving. <laughs> My wife told me a story when we were young married. She'll, she'll remember this. I'm going to ask her if she remembers this, telling me the story. There's a, this, this big ministry in the Chicagoland area. And the senior pastor was actively talking about tithing and giving. He had built this, <laughs> he bought a mall and turned the mall into the church. His employees, he would check the staff of the church. And if someone wasn't tithing, there was a person that wasn't tithing, and he suspended them for, for weeks without pay. He checked the staff to see if they were tithing. And when they weren't, he suspended them. They have an inordinate focus on tithing and giving. They sell their sermons. And they sell every other thing they can sell because they're trying to build an empire that's not of Jesus. That's the false prophet. Now listen, I believe in tithing. Uh, tithing is giving 10% of your income. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people, were, that was a base they gave to take care of the, the priesthood. The priests didn't have land and, and food. They were to serve the God exclusively, and the tithe was to take care of the, of the, the worship system in Israel. I believe uh, in tithing, not because the New Testament commends you to tithe. The New Testament commends you to give of yourself to the Lord and then give generously to the Lord's work. Christians, we give first ourselves and then we give to the Lord's work. And I think that tithing is a minimum generous standard. And so I have, I have tithed for 30 years, uh, some years off the growth, some off the net. I can tell you that I've never missed a dollar that I've given to the Lord. In addition to tithing, I give offerings like many of you do. So if you are a new person, if you're a new person and you're hardly making any money, I would tell you trust God and tithe. And if you're wealthy, I would tell you trust God and at least tithe and then do as best as you can, right? That's, that's, that was Timothy's instructive, uh, Paul's instructive to Timothy. Tell the rich to give liberally to people and to 
not trust in their riches. That's the instruction. So, so I got nothing against tithing. We should. But this is the longest I've been at High Point as an elder, seven years. This is the longest I've ever spoken on money. So there's an over, you know, they take three offerings in some of these places. And everything is for sale. The emphasis is totally in the wrong place. It's not on Jesus and that we give out of generosity to the Lord. That everything is from Jesus. We, whatever we give is, not a, is, is just a return to what is due him, right? That's proper teaching. So when the churches are out of balance, when the prophets are out of balance in their teaching about money, if there's an overemphasis on tithing and giving, then that's a sign that this is a false prophet. But there is a difference between a false prophet and an ignorant teacher. Occasionally, you're going to get some ignorant teaching for me. Occasionally. In fact, the last sermon I preached, there, uh, one, of, one of the people at the church, whose name I'm not going to call, sent me an email. And the email was like, Lloyd, did you really mean to say this about, about prayer? And I was trying to emphasize biblical praying and went a little bit too far in terms of my overemphasis. And she was dead right. In fact, after the sermon, uh, one of the staff people pulled me aside and said, Lord, did you really mean to say that? I said, no, I really didn't mean it, but I did say it. And so, and so, so, so one of the members sent me something on it. And so that's ignorant preaching. It's just wrong, right? There's a difference between wrong and false preachers that are intentionally trying to fleece the flock. Let me show you in the text. Acts 18, 24 through 26. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, where Paul had already planted a church. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he, he knew only the baptism of John. So he didn't know about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He knew about the, the God, Jehovah, he knew about Jesus, but he didn't know about the Holy Spirit. And they could, Priscilla and Aquila were listening to him, and they heard it, and, they, and they, they recognized he didn't know about the Trinitarian God. So what did they do? They didn't call him out in the sanctuary. They invited him over for coffee. They invited him over for coffee, and they explained things more accurately to him. Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And he went out more powerful than before, right? Leading people to Jesus Christ. So there's a difference between a false prophet who's trying to build a kingdom for themselves and an ignorant prophet. <laughs> you know, me would be like an ignorant prophet. A false prophet would be, uh, you know what I mean? There's a difference between those. And so you should pay attention and you should call it to our attention when you think that maybe there was something not quite right in what we preached because we, our intent is to only treat, to preach what is wholesome and accurate and true. So, so you can bring it to us and we won't go off on you. In fact, another sign of a false prophet is if when you try to, to gently correct them, they can't, they can't take it. They, get, they fly off the handle, that's another sign. So there's a difference between a false prophet and an ignorant prophet. So you can size up a prophet by identifying their message. Is their message rooted in the gospel, their master? Do they really 
Are they really following Jesus Christ? Do they recognize that they are a sinner saved by grace? Is Jesus their Lord? Are they depending upon the Word and the Holy Spirit in how they leave, live? And are their motivations right? Are their motivations like Joan of Arc? Are they chaste and godly and humble? Or are they greedy? And the two other ones, are they greedy? I don't want you to miss those, so I gotta remind myself. Are they sensual and are they prideful? So lastly, we need to be firmly established in the gospel. That's why we come to church and we, we listen to sermons and we go to Sunday classes. We need to believe that what God has given us by his spirit and in our family is enough, more than enough to live a godly life and productive life. And lastly, we need, this is the very last verse in Peter's letter to us. This is the very last on the left side. He says this, he concludes, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, make every effort to grow. Uh, don't be satisfied with where you are. Um, I love it when I see, um, I'm in my early 50s, I love it when I see saints who are 60 and 70 who, are, who recognize that they spiritually have room for growth, who are passionate about worship, passionate about the Word of God, passionate about knowing Jesus more, wanting to finish their journey well, Right, that, 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 that even those of us who've been walking with Jesus 30, 40, 50 years, there's room to grow. They've not fully made it. And so we ought to make every effort to grow, not because of some legal obligation, but because we love Jesus and we want to see the unchurched come to, to, to Christ. We want to see his kingdom glorified and we want to experience more joy in that. Let us pray. Lord, we recognize that we do, you have given us everything to live a life of, of godliness and productivity. Lord, but you've also, uh, and you've given us the mechanism to determine to tell the difference between truth and error, to tell the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. Uh, you've given us countless examples in, in history of godly leaders and, uh, and also of wolves and false prophets so that you leave us without excuse in, in knowledge and in knowing and in, in avoiding what is untrue. So Father, bless us. Bless us um, with a deeper um, understanding and more respect um, for the foundations of our faith. And uh, help us to hold ourselves accountable um, to authenticity, to biblical authenticity, to spiritual authenticity, and help us to hold our leaders accountable as well. Uh, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your church, uh, for the sake of, for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.